Welcome to Truth Encounter. Our study leader, Dave Wordson, is teaching through the book of Ephesians, and we thank you for joining us. How does Jesus change normal working people into saints? How does Jesus assure us that the ultimate Father in the universe unconditionally loves and accepts us and desires to establish deep peace within our hearts? As we turn to the opening lines of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we begin to get the answers to these questions. Let's begin this morning by thinking about how you feel about the society that you live in. How many of you have felt a little bit threatened? And as we sit in America today, as we sit in our culture today, the truth of the matter is that there's a tremendous conflict going on. The conflict is between paganism and those that really believe in God and especially those that believe in Jesus Christ. And you have to decide how you're going to enter in, which side of that conflict you're going to be on and how you're going to feel about it. For many, many years now, really, in fact, since the 1920s, you have been living in a culture that really isn't dominated by the Bible. It's not really dominated by what we call Protestantism. What happened was there was a tremendous demographical change. We had a lot of Irish that came in here from Ireland, so you had a very strong influence from that ground. You've got a tremendous influence from the South. You have a lot of Latins moving in. The truth of the matter is that in the 20th century, the whole demography of our country changed, and we're living in the reality of what's happening. And some of you feel very threatened by that. You feel like, man, it's just not like the good old days, and, and we need to go back to the good old days. And I want to really encourage you Because I believe that there's a tremendous conflict. There's those that don't really believe in Jesus. They don't believe in church. They don't believe in the Bible. And the truth of the matter is, I think there's a whole lot of them that really don't even understand what you're about and what I'm about. I think that a lot of us become very angry with them. I think we get very upset with them. Man, some of you say, man, I have to go out there. I'm going to fight for that. And man, I'm going to protest and everything. And I want you to know that you're part of a society that gives you the freedom to do that. And you should praise the Lord for that because it's part of our freedom. It's part of the way that our government works. But I want to go deeper this morning because I believe that the Apostle Paul tells us something that's very important about the way that you live in a pagan society. In fact, the first century church were specialists in this society. And just to clear the air a little bit, I want you to know that America from the very beginning has had a tremendous conflict between Paganism, which really goes back to the Greeks and the Romans. In fact, I just got back from Washington, D.C., and if you look at all the buildings, they're neoclassical. In fact, you look at all the columns, there's Corinthian columns and Ionic columns and kind of mixtures of the different columns, but all of our legal buildings are classical Roman Greek buildings because that's our culture. That goes back to paganism. It basically is the worship of nature. The Greeks worshiped a a multitude of gods, basically deifying the different forces of nature. And that's one of the forces that was evident in our founding fathers. Not all of our founding fathers were committed evangelicals. They weren't all committed to the Bible. In fact, Thomas Jefferson was very much aligned with a man named Thomas Paine, who was an agnostic who wrote tracts against Christianity. And I want you to know that that was present right in our founding. There was a great conflict between what's called the Enlightenment and the Protestant Reformation. The Enlightenment believes that your head, your thinking, is the measure of all things. That if we go back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, a lot of the Enlightenment was a revival of that ancient Roman Greek thinking. And the belief is that you can use your head and you can figure everything out. In fact, the truth of the matter is that there's no upper dimension. There's just this present material dimension and that's the way it is. And that's what life is all about. 
and you need to glorify this life. You need to make beautiful buildings. You need to have beautiful relationships with people. You need to invade the western part of the United States in those early days as well as, as the culture begins to be established. But you think secularly. If you want an example of that, Thomas Jefferson is a great example of a man that's totally controlled by the Enlightenment. Yes, he had a basic biblical morality. He didn't believe in throwing out the Ten Commandments, but he's basically an Enlightenment man. On the other hand, there's a man named George Witherspoon who chaired the Constitutional Convention. And George Witherspoon was the president of Princeton Seminary, Princeton College at the time. George Witherspoon could preach to you this morning. He could stand up here if we were back, you know, back there in the founding of our country. George Witherspoon could stand up here and he could open up the book of Ephesians and probably teach it better than me. And George Witherspoon believed in a personal relationship with Jesus. He believed that Jesus died on the cross for his sins. He believed that Jesus rose again from the dead. George Witherspoon chaired the Constitutional Convention. That's one of the reasons why the Constitution separates the three vital powers of our country. He does that because George Witherspoon really believed in the depravity of man. And he believed the only way to control that within government was to pit the different facets of government against one another, which is one of the things that was a brilliant reality that was true and it's given great blessing to our country. But I use George Witherspoon. He's an example of a man who was a Reformation man. So those two things have been vying back and forth in our culture ever since the beginning. And the conflict is still going on. Now, the question I have to ask myself this morning, and I want you to join me in asking myself, is what am I going to do about that as a believer? How am I going to relate to that? And so the Apostle Paul is a good man to talk to about that because the Apostle Paul, when he walked into the city of Ephesus, and what I'd like to do is, as we begin thinking about Ephesians, I want you to pretend that you're the Apostle Paul. So the truth in there is I talk to evangelicals and I talk to believers like yourself. A lot of them are mad. A lot of them are scared. A lot of them are reacting and they wonder if there's any hope. A lot of them are wringing their hands and in desperation and crying out and like, what in the world's going on? And I've got good news for you today. God is a specialist at conquering paganism. And it begins in my own heart. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because the Apostle Paul, in about 52 AD, he made his very first trip on his second missionary journey. He made just a brief trip into a city called Ephesus. Now, Let's just pretend that you're living back in the first century. You walk in the city of Ephesus, what it's like. Well, it's built right in the Keister River. To put it in a modern perspective so you know where we are, we're in western Turkey. We're in the third largest city of the ancient world. You go Rome, Athens, Ephesus. It's a city of about 250,000 people. And as Paul comes into this city, it is, the, it is first of all, an an economic power. All the roads, like the road from the east to the west comes right through the city of Ephesus. As you move from Rome and Greece and try to get to the east, you go right through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and Ephesus is the gateway to all of that trade. So this is a city, if you're a business person, you would feel right at home in this city. There's several agoras, not just one agora, but there's several equivalent of the first century shopping mall. So you ladies would be really happy. You could buy anything you wanted to buy, and you guys would be happy too, because you could buy anything you wanted to buy. So it's a big commercial center, all right? It's also a governmental center. It was a senatorial city. It was controlled by the Roman Senate. There was a proconsul that lived there. So there's government buildings that represent the Roman Empire. 
Now, the worship of the Roman emperor is not that strong. It's stronger in some other cities, but because this city is dominated by one goddess above all other goddesses. And her name is Artemis, or if you want to have its Latin form, if you're Roman, her name is Diana. For centuries, for centuries, in fact, from 400 B.C., and we're now, so for 500 years, when the Apostle Paul walked in this city, this city has been controlled by the worship of this mother goddess. What's she like? Well, first of all, there's a meteor that evidently fell down and landed in this part of the, of the world. It landed in the city of Ephesus. And from ancient times, this city has been gravitating around a meteorite. Isn't that awesome? And they worship a mother goddess that the people of Anatolia, or the people of this part of Asia Minor, has worshipped and adored. And she represents the forces of nature, the power of nature, the fertility of nature, the violence of nature. She represents all those mysteries that the great natural world brings together for us. So the Ephesians, the Ephesian people, worship this Artemis. And I want you to know that they don't just worship her, you know, lightly. They built an incredible temple. In fact, this temple is one of the seven wonders of the world. If you think of Texas Stadium, this temple is as big as the whole football field. And it's like the Greek Parthenon, only much bigger. And it's built of marble. It has beautiful cedar log, you know, cedar rafters that are, that are immaculate. It has incredible gems and people come from all over the world to come to this temple to worship Diana of the Ephesians. Now, there's a bunch of silversmiths. Wherever you have that kind of, of passion, you have that kind of worship, you're going to have some people that take advantage of it. So some silversmiths have put together little statues of Artemis. Like when I was in Washington, D.C. last week, about a week and a half ago, everywhere I went, you could buy, you know, little buttons about Bush, President Bush. You could buy, you know, FBI T-shirts. You know, you could buy, you know, little replicas of the Lincoln Memorial, all the different things. Well, if you went to Ephesus, you didn't buy little statues of the Lincoln Memorial. You bought this little Artemis, Diana statue. Now, let me tell you, the bottom of the statue could be, it could be a sphinx, it could be a lion, it could be a bull. It would be an animal. And that would represent that, that Artemis controls the violent wild animals in the animal king. And the top of the statue has, was, has these bulbous things that might represent the breasts of a woman. It could represent an acorn. It could represent other kinds of fruit. But the whole part of the upper part of the statue stresses the fertility and the power of nature and the productivity of nature. We found these statues all the way over in Spain. That's how far the Ephesians propagated this worship. When Paul walks into this city, the city is dominated by the worship of this pagan goddess. So if any of you are discouraged about America... Or if you're discouraged about the world that we live in, I want you to know that for 2,000 years, Jesus has been invading our world, and things aren't really, in a lot of ways, as bad as they were in, in Ephesus. Paganism was the total controlling religious system of the people in that day. Many of the people, they worship Artemis twice a, twice a year in March and April. Then again in May and June, people come from all over the world to worship this goddess. They have big processionals, like when they have a parade, like we have a parade for the 4th of July, they have a parade to worship Artemis. That's what Paul is up against when he goes to that city. That's what's involved. 
They had a theater in Ephesus that held 25,000 people. There's 12 big staircases that go to the top of that thing, which divide out the different sections of one of the most gigantic amphitheaters in the ancient world. One of the things, if you were in the cities, you went to worship at, the, at the, the Temple of Artemis, and then you went to the theater. Now you say, well, Dave, what did we do with the theater? You would see ancient Greek comedies. You would see tragedies. You would have the Roman emperor sending out his different theatrical performers, and they would do some things that would dramatize the battles of Rome. That's what the culture was like. The Apostle Paul come to this city with Priscilla and Aquila, some business friends of his, and the first thing he does is go to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he begins to tell them about a carpenter that was from Galilee that died on the cross for their sins, and he rose again. And the Apostle Paul began to argue from the Old Testament that this Jesus was the Messiah and he was the Savior. Now, I want you to stop and ask yourself, what chance does his message have of conquering the worship of Artemis? What chance does he have against the 25,000 theater goers? What chance does he have against the silversmiths? There are similar statues all over the place. From a human standpoint, he doesn't have a chance. But you need to stop and think what he did and what the effect was. Because that's what I want us as a church family to get caught up into. Paul, interesting enough, the synagogue, the Jewish people in the synagogue were really open to him. They said, Paul, we want you to stay. We want you to tell us more about it. But, you know, Paul wasn't a person that, that just kind of felt threatened or felt like everything was up and he just had to do everything right now. The Apostle Paul had a plan. He was going to Jerusalem to worship and he needed to touch base with some of his home base at Antioch. So the Apostle Paul has a plan. He's not just biting his fingernails. He said, I'm going to be back. But he left, even this wide open opportunity in the synagogue, and he left and went back to Antioch, and then he went on to Jerusalem, and then he doesn't come back to Ephesus until his third missionary journey, and then he spends from 53 till 56, about two and a half years, the Apostle Paul stayed in the city of Ephesus. And he started in the synagogue again. And in the synagogue, he picked up where he left off, and he argued with Jewish people that Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth, was none other than the promised Messiah from God. He explained to them from Isaiah 53 how Jesus was the one that carried all of our sins upon him. He, when he died on Calvary, he was the sacrifice for us. He told those incredible truths about the fact that Jesus left the tomb behind. And some of the Jewish people in the synagogue heard that truth. And God's spirit deep in their hearts said, that's right. Some of you can remember a moment like that. When you heard, maybe you were a little kid, when you heard someone explaining who Jesus was, you heard the fact that he died for you, you heard the fact that he rose again, and something inside of you said, that's the truth. And you decided, that's what I'm going to believe. That's what I'm going to trust. I ask you today, how many of you believe that? What do you believe? Is that what you believe? Well, some of the Jews got really upset about it, and they started making bad statements against the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul didn't get in a fight with them. He didn't just get angry. He didn't mobilize all his forces in the synagogue to try to get rid of those that were rejecting him. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. He just left the synagogue. Those that believed in Jesus left with him and they went to a more neutral place called the School of Tyrannus. In the Greco-Roman world, there would be philosophical schools, you might think of, where they would go and discuss philosophy. The School of Tyrannus was a school like that. The Apostle Paul moved into that school and for the next couple years... 
He tells people about Jesus. Now, what happened? Because he told people about Jesus. The Bible tells us that there were powerful miracles that took place in Jesus' name. In fact, Paul, at times, just gave portions of his clothing out and people were healed. Most importantly, people's lives were transformed. Pagans that worshipped Artemis turned away from the worship of Artemis and they started worshipping Jesus. It was so powerful that the silversmiths that were making these little idols got ticked because when you hit somebody in their pocketbook, it gets really rough. People aren't buying the statues anymore in Ephesus. There's a big drop in the sales of Diana's statues. It's so much so that Demetrius, one of the leading silversmiths, goes to this big theater that's crammed with people and makes an accusation against Paul, and a big riot ensues. And Paul wants to go in there and preach to them. But his believers thought better of it, and wisely, because Paul probably would have been killed. They said, not, this is not the place or the time, Paul. They're able to quiet the group down. Paul has to leave the city. He doesn't really come back to the city except for a very brief time when he meets with the elders of the city at a place called Miletus, which is the harbor city, because the Keister River is filling up the harbor. Ephesus is becoming farther removed from the sea. So a little town called Miletus is right there on the mouth of the Keister River where the ships can still get in. Paul meets with the elders. And that's why we have this book. Paul goes back to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. He spends two years in Caesarea in prison. And then he's sent to Rome. And he's waiting for Nero to hear his case. And about 62... A.D., probably just before he was released, his first Roman imprisonment, Paul got released from probably. Just before he got released, or during that latter part of his Roman imprisonment, I believe he wrote this book. And this book is one of the most powerful, short, to-the-point books that explains to you what it means to really have Jesus in your life and what Jesus brings. I believe that your unbelieving friends at school I believe that the people that work with you, I believe that what they need to see is not just power. They don't just need to see you politically organized. They don't just need to see you angry. What they need to see you is full of two things. And I want to talk to you about this this morning. They need to see that your life is filled with grace and filled with peace. What the book of Ephesians is going to tell us is that the only place that you can find the two most precious things you need, grace, and peace is in Jesus. The book begins like all these first century letters begin, and the, the Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, used a form that everyone understands. If you open up Ephesians chapter 1, the Greek Roman letters would begin different than ours. We start our letters, dear so-and-so. So we tell you who the letter's written to at the beginning. That's our form. Then we usually have a brief greeting. How are you doing? Things are really good. And then we get into what's called the body of our letter, which can take all different forms depending upon what the letter is about. And we give the content of our letter. Then we close the letter by saying, sincerely yours or love always. And then we put who the letter is from. So that's the English form. That's our custom. We write who the letter is from. It's to so-and-so, dear so-and-so. Brief introduction of blessing, of uh, casual talk of greetings, and then we have the body of our letter Then we close with from so-and-so. The way a Greek or Roman letter began, it started right away with from so-and-so. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, from Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's the, very, the very first thing we're faced with this morning is who wrote this book. 
Now, you need to decide where we're reading this book the next several weeks. You need to decide what you're going to be committed to, what you're going to believe about this book and whether you're going to accept it or not. And so Paul's telling you what his credentials are right away. See, every one of you have to decide where you're going to get your information about spiritual truth. For example, I mentioned Judge Moore down in Alabama. ABC was running a brief story of that and about the Ten Commandments. And ABC on the national news put out that there's the Protestant form of the Ten Commandments, there's the Roman Catholic form of the Ten Commandments, and there's the Jewish form of the Ten Commandments. And they implied, as they laid out those three different forms, that the Protestants made up their Ten Commandments, the Jews made up their Ten Commandments, and the Roman Catholic made up their commandments. It's all just arbitrary anyway. It's just three different religions. And if you were a secularist watching that, you would go, oh, yeah, yeah. It just, that's what, you know, the Protestants make up their commandments, the Roman Catholics make up theirs, the Jews make up theirs. And obviously, you know, it's not binding upon any one of us because it's just man-made. The, the tragedy of that whole thing was all that the different variations were in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, some of the commandments will begin saying, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So some of the forms commandments starts out with that. Some of the commandments will have phrases like, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And that'll be the first commandments. It was just variations in the Old Testament forms that if you think about the content, it's the same first commandment of the Ten Commandments. And the Protestants usually in their official presentation of the Ten Commandments use one form. The Roman Catholics use a very similar form, but a little bit different. And their Jews use a little bit different form, but it's basically the same content. But nobody said, hey, we're talking about different variations that have the same heart thrust that you've got to have no other God before me. No one said that. You need to decide. You need to decide who you're going to listen to. You need to decide whether you're going to believe in what the Scripture teaches what this revealed book that's been around for hundreds of years has to say, or whether you're going to believe what ABC says or what your friends say. Every single one of you have an authority. Every one of you listen to somebody about your spiritual beliefs. I want to challenge you to listen to the Apostle Paul. And I want to tell you why. He says, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The first thing I want to think of is Paul. His name is not Saul now, it's Paul. You might not realize that, but there was a day when Paul was Jewish. So the conflict between Judaism and Protestant Christianity, which is a big conflict that's constantly going on in our culture, New Testament faith shoots right by all that. Because the founder, the writer of the book of Ephesians, the one that had more influence other than Jesus, is the Apostle Paul. I want you to realize that he was a Pharisaic, committed, zealous Jew. Very important for you to understand that. So one thing you need to nail down. This isn't a debate between Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Jews. At this point, we got a Jew. He was raised as a Jew. He's born as a Jew in Philippians 3. He tells us he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He knows his lineage. He's a blue-blood Jew. He was rising up under the study with Gamaliel. He's rising up in the hierarchy of Judaism. This is the Jew. But he's now become Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. You need to ask yourself why. And it reminds you that there was a time in Paul's life when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, invaded the apostle Paul's life. On the road to Damascus, that's the story in the book of Acts. This man committed to throwing people like you that believe in Jesus in jail because he feels from his standpoint and he's arguing legitimately from his Jewish roots and from his Jewish way of thinking he holds that anyone that believes in Jesus is a blasphemer 
because they're believing that Jesus is God. They're believing he's the Messiah. So Saul, at this time in his life, this young Jewish guy, the young man, is the mobilizer, the shaker. He is angry, and he's throwing people in jail. He's using his religious power to throw people in jail. But now, in 62 AD, about 30 years later, this man is now Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? Because something actually happened in Paul's life. Paul, I want you to know, saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw Jesus high and lifted up, and Jesus forever changed his life. And you have to decide whether you believe that that testimony is true or not. Paul in the book of Corinthians will say that I'm an apostle that's born out of due time, that he's the last one in a long line of those that were able to actually see the visible, resurrected Jesus alive. Now, Paul called himself an apostle. What is an apostle? We have people today, like some of you have gone to churches where they'll say the apostle Frank or the apostle Stephen or like I would be the apostle David. Some people use those titles. Let's think about what it meant in the first century. In the first century, the word apostle in the Greco-Roman world would mean an envoy or an emissary or someone commissioned to be sent out. When it's used in the Old Testament, it's used for a Hebrew word that means to send someone out. That's the, that's the root meaning of the word. When the New Testament uses a word, it uses the word, first of all, for the twelve. And that twelve was completed. After Judas was hanged, it was completed in the book of Acts chapter 1 when Matthias was added. There's an original twelve apostles and their credentials are that they actually lived with Jesus. They witnessed Jesus' earthly ministry, beginning especially with the baptism by John the Baptist and then seeing him do the miracles in Galilee and Judea, eventually dying on the cross and then rising again, and they've actually witnessed the resurrected Christ alive. There's an original 12 apostles. That group is expanded. There's another group that are an, exp- an extension of that original 12 apostles, and those are men like James, the Lord's half-brother. James saw Jesus alive as well. And James became a leader in the Jerusalem church, and James becomes one of the writers of the New Testament, the book of James, easy to remember. James is an example of another dis- apostle that's beyond the original 12. The Apostle Paul is the last one of those additional first century eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Now, that's very important because what it means, like for Dave Wharton this morning, and I want you to join me in thinking like that, it means if I go back in time that I eventually arrive in the first century and Paul is running this letter to the Ephesians, who is this man that's running this letter? He isn't a man that has been commissioned by God, who has actually seen the basic foundational proof of our faith that our Savior is alive. Now, you have to decide whether you believe he lied, whether you believe that he, was, he saw just a wild, wild vision or some psychological hallucination, or whether or not he really, really saw Christ alive. And I believe he actually saw Christ alive. You say, Dave, what's, what's part of your reason for that? Because of the effect. He was a Pharisee committed Jew. Committed to the Ten Commandments, by the way. Committed to law. Committed to worshiping in Jerusalem. He was killing people about that. And suddenly, in just a matter of days, he becomes an apostle that proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth, who was actually born in Bethlehem, 
was the one that fulfilled all the Old Testament promises. And for the rest of his life, he even gives his life at the end of his life because he believes that Jesus is alive. And Paul is saying, I was especially commissioned as one that was born out of due time. I was especially commissioned by the God of heaven, not something that I chose, but something from the God of heaven that I was to deliver this truth. Paul is one of these commissioned first century official witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And he's laying the foundation of all of our beliefs. So whatever you believe, it needs to center back in the word of an apostle. That's what the apostle Paul wants these Ephesians to believe. He's an apostle of Christ That word means that he's an apostle of the Messiah, which for for a Jew was an incredibly powerful statement. He's saying that as a Jew, Jesus is my Messiah. He's the fulfiller of the promise of the Old Testament. His name is also Jesus, as I've often taught you. Paul is saying, I'm an apostle of the Messiah and of the Savior. And that's the ground. That's all what this book is going to be about. The apostle Paul believes, above all other things, Jesus truly is the one that fulfilled the messianic promises of the Old Testament. Jesus truly is the one that can save us from our sins. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. There's a humility in Paul. There was a day when Paul was filled with arrogance. There's a day when the apostle Paul cared a whole lot about what people thought about him. And he was rising up within his religious system. That day is all gone now. Because he believed that everything he's received... He's received as a gift from God. As we go through this book, I want every one of you to know, there's no need for any one of you to be jealous of someone else's talent. There's no need for any one of you to want to be like someone else. There's no need for you to be fighting and competing with one another because when we get through this book, every one of you is going to find out that you have a unique, special place in the heart of your Father in heaven and in the body of Christ. And it's by the will of God. In other words, I do what I do right now this morning by the will of God. It's totally of grace, totally a gift of mercy, totally a gift from the Lord. It's what the Lord built me to do in the body of Christ. He built me to be a teacher. He built me to expose God's word. That's what I do. You're going to have other gifts that I desperately need you, and you desperately need me. And every one of us are unique combinations of special gifts. And the Apostle Paul is saying that I'm not the one that's tried to be an apostle. I didn't politic to be an apostle, but I'm an apostle by the will of God. That's who this book is from. This book is from an eyewitness in the first century of the resurrected Christ who's been commissioned by God to deliver to us the fundamental truths of our faith. Second of all, who's the book written to? It's written to, it says, to the saints in Ephesus, to the faithful, and I would say to those, that would be more accurate to translate, to the saints in evidence, to those who have believed in Jesus. That's what the phrase means. It doesn't mean that we're talking about it. A lot of you, when you read those words, if I were to ask you on the street, are you a saint? A whole bunch of you would say no. And what would you mean by that? You wouldn't mean by that, saying, man, I don't live like Mother Teresa. You know, I'm not like the Pope. And I'm not Billy Graham, you know, the Protestant saint. You know, man, I haven't spoken standing. In fact, if I were to ask you today, How many of you will take the label saint? A whole bunch of you would say no, because you think, like, for example, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, a saint is someone that has done miracles, has been recognized as a very powerful influence within the church. Then they have to go through some historical time so that their credentials can be established, and then they have to be recognized by the magisterium and by the papacy in Rome to be saints. So saints, if you're from a Roman Catholic background... 
And some of you are from that background, so you'll understand the difference here in the book of Ephesians when it uses the word saint. Saints in a Roman Catholic background is a special group of people. And then you can also rely upon them. You can talk to them and pray to them because they can intercede for you. Like Mary's like an ultimate saint who can intercede with God from you. I want you to understand, based upon the first century letter of the book of Ephesians, that that's not the way the Apostle Paul uses the word saint. The Apostle Paul uses the word saint for every single one of you that's invited Jesus in your heart. The word basically means that you've been set apart for God that you have become one of his special children, that you have received his forgiveness and his love. And the Apostle Paul refers to everybody in Ephesus that's believed in Jesus as a saint. And so I can come to you this morning and I can say Saint Emily and I can say Saint Eric and I can say Saint Jimmy and I can say Saint Samuel. I can say Saint Steve. I can say Saint David. I can say Saint to every one of you if you've invited Jesus in your heart. And it's very important for you to believe that today. You say, Dave, how do I become a saint? As a gift. That's the incredible thing. That's the next phrase. To those who have believed in Christ Jesus. This book is going to be about those that have come to that moment in their life when they've trusted Jesus and they've trusted him and they've received him into their life. Now, when you receive Jesus, what happens to you? The Greek letter would say at this point, rejoice. I want you to be filled with joy. That was a normal thing. The Apostle Paul was Jewish. And what he did, and instead of just saying rejoice like a Greek, he said grace. The way the Apostle Paul introduced himself in a letter, he would say to you, grace. He would say to you, shalom. And he says, grace and peace to you be from God the Father, even from our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we close it. I want you to ask yourself, how do you think God feels about you. I think one of the most powerful things in all of our lives when we get down real deep in this structure and we ask ourselves, if you could see God's face, he's the invisible God, but let's suppose you could see God's face and we see the face of God and the face of Jesus Christ and I mention your name, is he going to smile or frown? And I think the truth of the matter is that a whole lot of believers deep in their soul says he'll frown. Some of you have been taught about grace because it's the major word of our church. But I think there's a whole lot of you this morning that I were to ask you. In fact, beg you say, Dave, how do you know this? Because it's what I naturally do. You see, I naturally believe in merit. I naturally believe that if I act really good, then I'll receive blessing from my Father. That's what I naturally believe. And so I try to perform. I try to be good. I try to work hard. And you know what? There's a ton of teachers, there's a ton of preachers, a ton of cultures, even within our circles, that teach us that. If you're a good child, then your father will smile upon you. We reward kids that way. We do it in school. We do it all the way through. But you know what the word grace means? The word grace means this. You're a husband. You find your wife in bed with another man, and you should kill her, and you should throw her out in the street, and you should not have anything else to do with her. But deep in your heart, you still love her. Francine Rivers loves to tell stories of grace. Her story, her modern-day allegory about the book of Hosea, tells the story of Hosea, this pioneer out on the West Coast who has a whore for a wife that again and again and again keeps slipping. And again and again and again, he goes after her. And that's grace. That's grace. She tells another story in Roman Greek times about a girl 
who was a believer that's thrown to the lion, and the lions tear her up, and her body's mutilated, and she almost dies. And this ugly woman, her body's broken, her body is mutilated, it's scarred, it's, it's a mess. And she somehow recovered and becomes a very healing, humble believer. But the man that she loves is a Roman that doesn't know Christ. And through the course of the story, the man comes to know Jesus. And he comes in contact with her, but she's always hooded because she doesn't want anyone to see her ugliness. And so throughout the whole story, she doesn't let the man see that she loves more than anything else in the world. She never lets that man see her ugliness. And finally, at the crisis of the story, she's unmasked. And the man, like all of us as men, we love what's beautiful. We love what attracts us. We love what feeds our ego. That isn't grace. Grace is this man looked at that scarred body of the woman, that ugly, scarred, broken body, and he sees beauty. He sees charm. And he gathers that little woman in his arm and says, I want you to be my wife forever and ever and ever. That is grace. That's the most powerful message, my brothers and sisters, in all the world. And most of you haven't heard it enough. Most of you haven't believed it enough. That's why Christians are angry. You know what the Ten Commandments does to people? It kills them. That's all it can do. It's a diagnostic tool that says, Dave Wurtz, and you haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart. You've stolen. You've lied. You've coveted. You break every one of those Ten Commandments and you're under the penalty of death. You know what grace is? Grace says, you've broken it all. But by a choice of my love, my son's going to take the rap for you. You know what our society needs to see? They need to see you and I go out this week and say, I don't obey the Ten Commandments any more than you do. And I don't live consistent with the Ten Commandments, but I've received an incredible gift of forgiving grace. And my passion for our society is that we're going to be like these ancient first century Ephesians. You know how they conquered their society? You say, Dave, that's weak. That's not going to have any effect. You know what? These humble believers that believed in grace, in about 100 years, the worship of Artemis was gone. You know why? Because when people are exposed to people that have received grace, and when they're exposed to people that have found peace, they don't need idols anymore. Who needs a little statue? Who needs a meteor? Who needs to live just for this present world when you've found this ultimate, gracious, peace-giving Savior? As you go out on your society today, I want you to ask yourself, how can I help people to know about grace. How can I live so that unbelievers will learn about my Savior and about peace and about shalom? That's what I need to ask myself. That's what you need to ask yourself. Brothers and sisters, grace and peace conquers paganism. Grace and peace that comes through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I slip into meritorious reward at the drop of a hat and I lose my peace and I begin to feel hostility towards you and I begin to feel distance from you and I thank you for this incredible book of Ephesians that for 2,000 years has been telling us that you're not angry with us that you hate our sin 
that you judge our sin, but that you made it possible because of what your son did on Calvary for sinners, guilty, dirty sinners, rebels, to be forgiven. Father, I think of a relative in my family that was an agnostic and totally rejected the New Testament. I remember him training his kids using literature from Thomas Paine and, and other literature like that. And Lord, I can remember being angry with him and, and thinking, man, he'll never come to know Christ. And yet over just the last couple of years, my agnostic relative has now become a committed believer and his wife just mentioned as he goes to talk to one of his kids that's rebelling, his wife said, his daughter will not be with him for five minutes without hearing about Jesus and the love of Jesus and the power of Jesus. There's a whole lot of people that used to be just like the pagan Ephesians, but now they've become saints. And I would ask you, Lord, that we would never get over the wonder of that transformation, the thrill of that transformation. I'd ask you, Lord, for anyone that has not opened their heart to the grace and peace that Jesus can bring. I want to ask you, Lord, that we, as they read this book, that they'll just take the challenge to read the book of Ephesians this week and ask themselves about your love. And ask you, Father, that just like the resurrected Christ revealed himself to Paul, I pray that you would reveal yourself to anyone here that's never yet had Jesus come to live inside their life. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.